Thank you for downloading the Inspire Me Lecture podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Darren Reynolds, Professor in Health and Environment at the Centre for Research in Biosciences at UE Bristol. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. Welcome to today's Inspire Me Lecture. I'm Alyssa Willis, and I'm Head of Student Communications here at UWE. Our speaker today is Dr. Darren Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds is a professor in health and environment at the Center for Research and Biosciences in the Department of Applied Sciences at UWE. He uses his teaching and research to inspire individuals about the power of ideas and that we are all capable of ideas, no matter who we are or where we come from. He's a keen science communicator and has dedicated his life to help inspire a generation of innovators and entrepreneurs to help shape the world in which we all share. His interests take him into the worlds of food and potatoes, human health and disease, and the movement of carbon through the rivers of the world. From the Arctic Circle, coral reefs, and the great rainforests of the world, he spends most of his time working in partnership to solve real world problems. He's a strong believer that we all have a superpower and his is turning great ideas into reality. After his talk, we'll have some time for some questions, so feel free to put them in. And we'll be recording this lecture so it'll be available on our speaker library. I'm delighted to hand over to Darren. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Alyssa, and hello to everybody who's out there. It's very, uh, very difficult to even see if there's anybody out there, but I'm assuming uh, there's more than myself and Alyssa. Uh, but most of you, I think, will be here for the first time. Um, and you'll be at university, possibly for the first time. Some of you maybe are patching in from outside or have been at UE for a couple of years, second year or whatever. Um, university is a great places to be and they're great places to be because they're full of ideas and they're a place where you can explore those ideas and we all have the superpower um, of ideas and I just want to share with you my experience of generating ideas and maybe just telling you a little bit uh, about the journey that I've gone through uh, in uh, developing ideas, implementing ideas, and using ideas or trying to grab hold of ideas to try and um, change the world. Because I think ideas are fundamentally a very human thing uh, and they connect us all. Okay, so I'm gonna kick off this, this uh, adventure on ideas by first saying, first, you must observe the things around you, observe the world around you. And that's where I started really, uh, was this idea of understanding and trying to piece the world around me. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Uh, what things look odd? What things uh, look really cool? And uh, why are they there? Why are we here? These are all very simple human emotions, um, but they are incredibly important. And they're the thing that really dis makes us distinctive, I guess, from every other living thing uh, on, on Earth. And we can use those observations uh, for good or, or, or for ill. For me, um, I've always had a massive fascination in how people uh, intersect with the Earth system because we are having a profound impact on the planet around us. Um, and we all know that and we're all taught about that and we all learn about that. But that intersection where people and the Earth um, meet really fascinates me. And despite all the amazing science that goes on, the truth of the matter is, as far as we know, we're still the only living being in our observable universe. And that warrants a little bit of attention. That warrants a little bit 
uh, of, uh, you know, imagination. I mean, it's the most amazing story uh, that we've ever been told or that we know. Uh, we are here on Earth. And as far as we know, uh, the life on Earth is the only life that's in our observable universe. And that really fascinates me. And one of the things that's driven me throughout my academic career is understanding how we're going to fit uh, on this small Earth. There's, there's such a fragile entity that's whizzing around a middle-aged star in the middle of our solar system and has been for about four and a half to five billion years. So um, what does that mean, uh, us living on this planet Earth? And are we living within our means? And I think we're all pretty much now uh, entering a period in human history where we know we are living beyond our means. We understand we need energy for our daily lives and our big societies and communities that we've built. Um, so understanding how we're going to get that energy and where that energy comes from is a really, really important thing. Um, understanding where we're going to uh, get the food how we're going to grow the food, what impacts does growing that food have on planet Earth? Uh, the water we drink, um, I'm, of course, I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. But where does that water come from? How much water do we use? Why is it that we can put satellites on, uh, on meteors, but yet we're incapable of providing each individual on Earth with clean drinking water? Um, so this really throws up lots of moral, ethical and scientific questions. And those things are knitted together really through uh, the, the concept of ideas. And ideas come from uh, us as humans. We're not born with ideas. Uh, it's not genetic. We're taught uh, to develop those ideas through education. And that's why being at university is such a wonderful part and time of your life, even dis in despite uh, of the current times that we find ourselves, um, you know, the ability to explore your brain, your imagination uh, and the power of ideas is absolutely palpable. And living within our means uh, provokes some really stark questions. Uh, and I think what we all uh, are, are acutely aware is that's given rise to some unintended consequences. I don't think for one minute we set out to change the world uh, in the way uh, that the world is changing, uh, to pollute our rivers, to pollute our seas, to destroy our forests, to oversee the biggest uh, loss in biodiversity that uh, humankind has ever known and maybe arguably even uh, the history of the world as ever known, to change uh, the natural cycles which give us the very things that we need, give us the food we need, the air we need to breathe and the water we need to drink, disturbing those cycles to such an extent that uh, it actually threatens uh, the very survival of a lot of life on Earth and of course ultimately um, the survival of ourselves as human beings. Um, and those things always really um, through me uh, and, and really made me think and I was really curious about those things and when I look at all of those uh, big issues the issue of water and sanitation cuts across all those big problems and what you've just seen in front of you there is a big map of uh, the development goals the global goals for sustainable development the university uh, really uh, 
if you like, measures its 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 performance pretty much on a global scale using those indicators. And you probably come across those in whatever course you're doing here at the University of the West of England, because they're really big issues. They deal with poverty, they deal with food, they deal with energy, uh, they deal with equality and water and sanitation and, uh, you know, having access to those um, really cuts across many of those things. So I really got interested and stimulated uh, by uh, understanding water a little bit more. And that brings me to my second concept, which is this uh, whole idea of understanding and learning. And I think when you're trying to uh, look at a problem or come up with ideas, this is a really important aspect of that process is learning um, and understanding uh, what it is you're dealing with. And that invariably, invariably means talking with lots of people. It means um, interacting with the literature, it means reading and all the sorts of stuff that you will be um, doing i guess uh, during your time here at um the university so i'm going to ask you all a quick question now obviously um I, I don't expect you uh for one minute to uh be able to feed that back but could you perhaps uh, answer this what's on the screen now so where does um why does our planet have water so understanding what we're dealing with understanding the problem so um is it the climate? Is it distance from the sun? Is it Earth's geology? Or did it come from outer space? And uh, the correct answer is it arrived from outer space. So it came to Earth on a meteor crashing down, uh, depositing water. And the, and the Earth as a system really regulates uh, the production and distribution of that water that landed here uh, many, many, many billions of years ago. So that was quite fascinating for me, is to see that actually water wasn't just here, it arrived from elsewhere. And the only things we get from outer space, uh, now that the Earth uh, is where it is, is actually sunlight. Uh, and that sunlight really helps the Earth to drive all those uh, different types of processes. One of the other things uh, which I was really fascinated with was how much water do we use every day? So say you as a single person, perhaps, or living on your own, if we take that as a model, um, how much water would you typically use? And for an individual, that would be about 180 litres a day, which is quite a lot and far more than many other individuals use are, you know, around the globe. So how much water we use? where it comes from is starting to understand the problem. Um, and the use of water, the more I dig into it, uh, the more fascinating it became. So for instance, uh, we use our uh, water in all things that we do pretty much. We use it in manufacturing, uh, we use it in our homes, of course, uh, and we use it to grow the food that we eat. So which of these do you think constitutes the biggest user of water on earth? Well, there'll be no surprises that it's growing the food we all eat and about as much as 70 percent of all water that is abstracted is used to grow food, the food that we eat. And this was extremely fascinating for me. Um, and when if you go into different types of food or individual types of food, it becomes even more revealing. So if we look at, for example, producing one kilogram of beef, uh, this is not meant to be a loaded question, by the way, um, so you can think of this as you will. Uh, how much water do you think is required on average uh, to produce one kilogram of beef? And some of you may be surprised to hear 
that that is actually 100,000 litres compared to 1,000 litres of water, which is used to grow grain on average. So there is lots and lots of sums. There's lots and lots of um, choices to make, I guess, when we're talking about the use of water by humans on Earth. And of course, this becomes incredibly important because on an annual basis, we are growing about 4 billion tonnes of food every year. So imagine how much water is required to grow that amount of food. Well, it's a staggering amount. And this is where the problem starts to become uh, more complex. So we're producing a lot of food. We're using a lot of water to produce a lot of food. And this, uh, the picture you can see in front of you is a family that I met in Madagascar about three or four um, years ago. Um, and the thing I'm trying to get across in this lecture is that everything is connected. So if you look at food waste on average across the planet, we can waste anywhere between 35 and 40% of food. That is as much as 40% of food never reaches a human tummy. So that has repercussions, uh, which I won't go into in this lecture, but it has repercussions on a human scale. It has reproductions on an energy scale. It has repercussions uh, on a water scale because everything uh, around us on Earth and the things that we do are connected. And uh, what we now know, of course, being on Earth uh, and uh, what we're fed almost daily, I guess, now in the, in the news, uh, is that all of this uh, use of uh, material, all of this consumption of water is driving change. And it's driving change, uh, which on many instances is not great. And that's because everything is connected. So the more we take, yeah, the more we use, uh, the less we can replace. And ultimately, this leads to detrimental change. Do you, uh, detrimental um, changes in our environment, in our quality of water, in our quality of food, um, and our quality of life, and in the biodiversity of life on Earth. Everything, everything is connected. So my third uh, sort of part in this process of ideas is understanding the challenge. I mean, that all seems really, really quite, quite, quite stark and quite large. Uh, but, you know, what is the challenge of providing water? And here in the UK, we are provided with outstanding quality water. Uh, most people don't moan about their uh, water bills. You might uh, moan about your uh, broadband bills or you might moan about your electricity bills. Very few individuals actually complain about their water bills. And this is stuff that you get delivered to your door, uh, probably for less than, uh, you know, two pounds for the ton upstairs. So 1000 litres of water will cost a lot less than two pounds and you can get it delivered uh, actually upstairs to your room. So that's pretty good value. And the quality of that water, despite what many people may think, is outstanding. So 365 days a year, uh, pretty much 99% compliance rate. The water that is being delivered to your student accommodation is actually fantastic. It's amazing. And you get to drink that water uh, perfectly um, uh, healthy in its nature. And of course, a vital requirement um, for, for you as an individual. And we collect this water in these big reservoirs. And what you can see here is Chew Valley 
reservoir. This is a local reservoir further down um, south uh, of Bristol, uh, and that really provides some of the water that is probably delivered to your taps on a daily basis. And we collect all of that. So understanding how we do these things is fundamental to coming up with a good idea. Uh, what they'll do with this water is they'll have a whole series of steps of treatment, such as filtration, uh, absorption using very clever chemicals. And of course, you'll all be familiar with disinfection, which is um, uh, usually chlorine um, in the UK, which is used to make the water biologically safe. That is safe from microorganisms. And that's a really important thing. And it's a massive public health intervention and probably one of the greatest public health interventions uh, of um, the 20th century. Uh, one of the biggest killers still on Earth is dirty water. And we'll talk about that in a little bit um, uh, in, a, in a while. Another thing I think which is really interesting when you start to unpack uh, problems is, is it the same everywhere? We have very great uh, water here in the UK. What does it look like across the piece? And of course, what most of you will be familiar with is the fact that in certain parts are, of uh, the planet, we are severely experiencing water stress. Uh, you know, maybe a, a loss in quantity, certainly a loss uh, in quality. And that is pretty much driven in part by practice, um, and, uh, um, you know, the sector, sectoral use, such as agriculture, but also being driven by the climate. So water isn't available for everybody. OK, uh, it's available in different amounts, varying degrees of quality in different places all over the world. And that presents unique challenges uh, for humans and adaptation challenges and challenges in growing food and doing all the things uh, where we need water and we need to use water. And of course, here in the UK, we're extremely lucky. So in many parts of the world, this could be the subcontinent, this could be uh, parts of Africa, this could be parts of Asia, uh, actually even certain parts of Europe too. Uh, their method of collecting water and uh, providing water can be very, very low um, scale uh, and it can be very inefficient. OK, we are starting to develop uh, technologies such as the live straw, but these are not really capable of providing large quantities of water, certainly for small or medium sized communities. So um, globally, many billions of people still lack, ad lack adequate sanitation. Um, that is, they don't have the infrastructure to, uh, you know, to, to get rid of human waste. They don't have the infrastructure to get clean water delivered to their doors and they don't have the infrastructure um, to separate the two. And as a result of that, many billions of people on Earth, yeah, that's over half of all the population on Earth, do not have access to adequate sanitation. The sorts of things that you and I take for granted on a daily basis. So how many people um, are really living with unsafe water? And we would categorize unsafe water here as water that is biologically unsafe. Well, the recent figures are 750 million. So that's 750 million um, um, people that are without safe, biologically treated water. And in fact, if you look at uh, the history of water, uh, you will uh, you will find out 
that water is by far the biggest killer of any wars, even in tape, even when you, you know, in, in total count, uh, it's the biggest killer on earth. Um, and it's not acceptable in the modern day uh, world in which we live, uh, having this inequity, uh, having the inability to provide clean, safe access to water to many, many individuals, people and their families is clearly ethically, morally, uh, technically wrong. And you might think this is a problem which is only, um, you know, the, the, it doesn't really affect us here in the UK, uh, that it's really a, a problem that resides overseas. Well, this is not the case at all. And in fact, if you look at recent uh, news, these are uh, this is news coming out of um, the last 18 months or so, um, the rivers here in the UK are in a pretty appalling state. Um, and in fact, indeed, across Europe in the main, they are in a pretty dire state. So we are not looking after our water. And that is an amazing thing to say because we rely on water so much, but we are not looking after it and we are not keeping it clean. And um, some of the issues around that are about us as individuals. They're about us, uh, you know, in terms of what we do in our daily lives. So, for instance, in the UK, this is just the UK. If we talk about uh, the purchase of plastic water bottles just for drinking water, this is not for cake or fizzy drinks or anything like that. This is just for water. In the UK, we consume 7.7 billion uh, plastic bottles every year. That is enough virtually to give every individual on Earth yeah, a plastic bottle. Yeah. Just in the UK. And everything, right, is connected. And this brings a whole new meaning or definition to Mountain Springs, because actually what we are doing is filling up our Earth with debris. We're filling it up with waste. And that waste uh, doesn't just sit there. That waste ultimately finds its way back into all of those systems, the air, uh, the soil and the water, all these things that we rely on uh, as human beings for our survival and that the Earth system relies on in you know, to sustain the biodiversity of which, remember, uh, we are the only uh, planet, as far as we know, that has that biodiversity on Earth. Uh, and in fact, it gets a little bit more bleak because in 10 years time, we'll need a lot more food, we'll need a lot more uh, energy, and we'll need a lot more water. And this can be quite overwhelming. It can be a little bit um, depressing. And this is where, uh, you know, uh, really we're, we're looking to create uh, solutions or attempt to deal with these big problems in a constructive way. And part of the compounding issue we have with water is actually there's not that much on Earth. We think there is, but there isn't. So if you look at Earth from space, it's mostly covered in water. In fact, almost three, uh, three quarters of it is covered in water to a certain extent. But most of that water, of course, is the oceans. In terms of fresh water, only 2.5 percent of all water on Earth is fresh. And actually, it gets even more um, sort of um, stark when you talk about the amount of water that is available to us as human beings, because actually it's probably less than 1% of all water on Earth. 
Now, this is, I've sucked all the water using another one of my superpowers out of the earth, so it's dry. Um, and I've put all of the seawater, yeah, the oceans, in the, in the big bubble you can see, which is about 360 miles across. Uh, I've put all the water uh, from all the lakes and rivers and out of the ground, all the fresh water out of the ground, lakes and rivers, in that sort of uh, smaller bubble. And that's about 170 miles across. And most of you might be able to just pick out the really, really tiny bubble. Well, that's all the fresh water on Earth that is present in rivers and is present in lakes. And that is what's available to us pretty much. Now, that is only 35 miles in diameter. That is like driving from Bristol to Swindon. And you drive through the entire, the entire supply of fresh water for everybody on planet Earth. That is actually quite amazing. And what we all do really, really matters because everything, everything is connected. So the next part of my process is, well, what if? You know, it's all very depressing. Well, what if? Ask that question. You know, this is the start and the birth of ideas. What if? Well, what if I could turn dirty water into clean water? Uh, and people may say, well, that's not difficult, but I've looked at the evidence and actually a lot of people don't have clean water. So it clearly must be more tricky than perhaps we think it is. So I started off with um, an idea or a plan and I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And this is the plan. <laughs> this as ridiculous as it sounds. It sounds as if I've drawn it with my left hand uh, with my eyes closed um, late one night. Uh, well, this is how it started. So probably 13 years ago, I drew this plan. Uh, I was going to replicate what I'd learned, that knowledge, and I was going to see if I could turn dirty water into clean water. And then I realised that in order to do that, I'm going to need some, some help. And I think this is where you then get into a, a, a space of sharing your ideas. Ideas kept to yourself are no good for anybody. Um, and this is famously summed up in George Bernard Shaw's quote, which you can all access on the screen. But sharing your ideas is much more powerful than keeping your ideas to yourself. And it's a really important actuator. Yeah, this is the, the, the kind of the trigger for action when you share ideas. Yeah. What if? How about this with other people? Yeah. See things from other perspectives. These are really powerful human actuators. Also, I needed some dirty water and we have some dirty water on campus because we, like many other places, uh, collect uh, water that runs off from our roads, that runs off from the campus and from some of the um, uh, public drainage systems. And we collect and we manage that as we are required to do. And this pond is uh, a pond on the French A campus. And if you're very careful, you can just spot the Canadian geese, which provide us with lots of bacteria because they do lots of interesting um, sanitation uh, activities in that pond. And they do that uh, most of the time year round. And we can use that water, if you'd like, to test some of my uh, ideas or some of our ideas and see if we can turn that water into clean water. The other thing I needed, which is very unusual in a university setting, was a shed. I needed somewhere to treat this water. And this is where sharing my ideas became really, really important because I couldn't build a shed on my own. 
Yeah, I can do many things as a scientist and they all sound incredibly clever. But what I can't do is get a shed and build that shed and then kit that shed out. So I needed help. I needed help from the university and I needed help from outside organisations. Uh, an industry in this case uh, came to my rescue. They helped me kit the shed out and they helped me put equipment in. And here, all this is, is a realisation of the how to that I showed you earlier on. So we have filtration, we have um, disinfection, we have settling tanks, all that kind of stuff, very small scale. Let's see what we can do, put it in a shed. Let's see if we can turn the pond water into clean water. This is where uh, now I zoom ahead uh, and move to a phase six, which is persistence, perseverance, practice, patience and passion. And the reason why I say that is because the time I have allowed in this talk uh, will not be enough for me to scoot over the next 10 years, because that's how long it took. Uh, it took 10 years um, and a lot of help from a lot of researchers, OK, to try and fine tune that basic idea that you saw on a flimsy bit of paper, turning that into reality. Uh, and for that, uh, 10 years, you know, you've really got to keep hold of the idea that you set off with. You've got to keep hold of what it is you set out to do and what you set out to achieve. And this tells you that change fundamentally relies on ideas, but it's a process. It's not an event. You know, change doesn't happen on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah, it happens uh, often through decades. Yeah, and sometimes even longer than that. But they're built, change is built fundamentally on ideas and um, round about uh, two years ago uh, three years ago we finally had a chance to make a difference we got a big project which is funded by the UK government it's a partnership between ourselves and our Indian partners and colleagues over in um, uh, Kolkata uh, and the Bose Institute and we were uh, given the challenge of providing uh, treatment technologies for turning dirty water into clean water and through uh, partnership with our industrial sponsors, partnership with academic institutions, scientists, researchers, students, undergraduate students, um, uh, people from the university, electricians, uh, people working in charities uh, here, in, uh, here in the UK and also in India, we were able to develop a technology platform that took water from the pond that I showed you earlier, um, put it in a much more professionally looking piece of equipment, uh, which resembles something like a water treatment stage, uh, and then put that here to good use at the University of the West of England French A campus, treating that pond. Uh, we've had this system running for about nine months, um, and this has resulted in two million litres of drinking water. This is water that is fit to drink for anybody in the UK because we've applied the same standards. We've had it independently analysed. What does that mean? Well, that means uh, we've saved potentially or could have saved six million plastic bottles which would have been bought for producing or, or for drinking that same amount of water. In terms of people, um, that's enough water uh, for 300 people for a whole year. 
And that's just, you know, on this one game. I mean, imagine, uh, you know, if we could replicate this over and over again. This is not a magic bullet. This is not going to solve all the problems, but it's a start. And it's, um, it's a different way of solving the problem. And I think this brings me uh, round to where we're going next. So we're now in the phase where we're going to be visiting India. Uh, we're going to be identifying sites through our collaborative partnerships where we're looking to deploy our big water treatment facility and where we can leave it there for a period of time to produce clean drinking water. And the idea behind that is to get the end users to provide their input into the technology so we can fine tune it specifically uh, in a way that addresses and meets their needs. Um, that means a lot of visits, that means a lot of scoping and ultimately deployment of the eventual technology. Obviously, we've hit a little bit of a, a buffer at the moment, uh, but I'm going back to uh, perseverance and patience. And that's what we're going to have to, uh, I guess, perform over the next six to 12 months um, while we're waiting to deliver this piece of technology out to our India, Indian colleagues where we can start to produce clean drinking water. And this um, sort of, to me, comes together because everything is connected. Everything that we do is connected. So if everything is connected to everything else, then for better or worse, everything matters. So everything that we do matters, yeah, even on a small scale. And this, I think, brings me probably to the close um, of my talk, which is the what if. What if I hadn't had asked that question? What if? What if everybody asked this question, what if? Because ultimately, the what and the if is the origin of human curiosity, is the origin of ideas. And ideas can fundamentally change uh, the world. They can fundamentally change um, the place where we live. What if we were kinder to each other? What if we used a lot less stuff? What if we did things differently? Now, it's easy not to ask that question. It's easy to sit on the side and it's easy to maybe um, forget that what if is not important. Well, I'm here to tell you today that what if is important. And I hope there's one thing you do over the next few years of your life while you're studying here at the university. Um, is that you ask what if, you know, ask it when you're out with your friends, ask the what if uh, in your uh, uh, lectures, ask the what if uh, of all the material that you're reading, because the what if is perhaps the only thing that we've got uh, that can really help us change the world in which we live. Thanks um, very much for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Darren. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, if you look over in your Q&As, there's quite a few there uh, that have been published. If you want to work through them. Good luck. Right. OK. So, hello. I'm uh, OK. So the first one. Hello. I'm with Darren when it comes to change. But in my opinion, integrity and research and research is about most of Beef Central.com news. Does it really take two 
20 thousand liters of water is produced one well i mean okay that's a fair point uh, it's how many um ways do you want to uh do you want to slice the beef i guess on that question um the reality is we could sit down and have a method methodological discussion about how you quantify uh that amount whether or not you're taking in, into account the amount of water that's used to grow the grass whether or not you're taking into account the amount of water that's used to grow the grain uh that is used to feed the cows um and i think that is uh, important i don't think things are ever really clear cut uh but i think one thing is pretty pretty absolutely certain and that is it takes a lot of water to grow our food and that really is a point i guess um that i was making why is the focus for change always directed at the individual corporations are never asked to change their behaviors okay uh, i think that's a really interesting question all i can say on that is individually we all have a responsibility uh, at a corporation level we have a responsibility and at a government level we have a responsibility now you may have certain views as uh to how much some of those have uh fared better than others but from an environmental point of view i think uh what is absolutely clear is the individual has failed the corporations have failed and the governments have failed so i think that's a collective responsibility there uh, i do accept uh i guess the spirit of the question um and i think actually what I have demonstrated in my talk is by working together. So I've worked with corporations as an individual. With charities and non-government organisations to try and make a change. So I guess we're all part of that puzzle um, and. Um, some of the solutions that we have to provide together require working together and sharing those ideas. Um, do you have any recommendations on books, authors to read? I have absolutely late um i can say if you start off by reading somebody called kenneth boulding who wrote uh, an essay in 1966 uh, he was a, a a british american economist uh, and that uh, paper was called coming of the spaceship earth that's a fantastic place to start um and it talks about all the things that really resonate with some of the problems today um and it's a, maybe a different take on economics than the, maybe the modern interpretation. If you wanted to uh, maybe email me, I'd be very happy to exchange some ideas with you on, on literature. That would be great. OK, so one here from Alistair Sweeting on doesn't the water on the planet stay at a constant amount, though? Um, yes. Uh, well, not necessarily. Um, I think there's a water cycle. So temperature plays an important part. Uh, when that water which is held in the atmosphere is released plays an important part so it may be constant but its availability changes quite dramatically and anybody who's lived in Bristol knows that sometimes we get huge huge downpours and uh, collecting water um, on earth is a bit like buckets so you know we collect water through water catchments uh, and those water ca catchments essentially are buckets if you have five water catchments or 20 water catchments you have 20 buckets and you can only have 20 filled buckets at a time uh, and what we've designed that whole um ability to to catch water on is you know moderate rainfall uh that comes consistently throughout the year not in these big downpours and then periods of dry uh, so that really upsets the cycle um and the way that we live our lives and the way that we've organized that infrastructure is not conducive um 
for those kind of changes. So I guess that's where um, why we experienced a lot of water stress. So I mean, Cape Town had um, in South Africa experienced a drought for well over two years, well over two years, and they still exhibit um, tremendous water problems. Is there any alternative for water? Shan, that's a question by Shan. That's a fantastic question. Uh, I don't know of one. Uh, I think uh, you need hydrogen, you need oxygen, uh, and our whole bodies have evolved based uh, on the need uh, for water. Water is an amazing substance. Um, you know, it can exist as a solid, a liquid, and a gas um, within actually, uh, you know, on the same planet uh, because of its, if you like, its its chemistry and its physical uh, qualities. Not many substances are able um, to do that in the sorts of temperatures um, that we need our planet to be, yeah, for life. Uh, so that's really the fantastic thing about water. It's also a universal solvent. So many, many things dissolve. Even when we don't think they dissolve, they dissolve a tiny bit. But certainly for our body, we're mostly water, actually. Most of our body, uh, you know, um, works using water. So we're basically water machines. And if we didn't have water, uh, it wouldn't be sustainable for us, I'm afraid. So I don't think there is an alternative for water. Um, is there, this is another question from Wahib. Is there an exact reason as to why we grow an excess amount of food? It's not being distributed equally. So what's the point? Well, I think this is, I guess, where you talk about what you what you need versus what you want. And I think if we're all really honest with ourselves, uh, we're all guilty of overconsumption of something, um, whether it's uh, gadgets or whether it's clothes um, or whether it's food. We're all sort of, you know, we're all playing a part in that. Um, and I think it's, a, you know, how much use is it to sort of just say, um, you know, well, we've got to blame each other and we've got to shame each other for doing things. I think that's really very useful. What we've got to do is to understand uh, that what we do really, really matters. Everything we do really, really matters. Yeah. Um, it might just be a plastic bottle, but it matters. That plastic bottle has to be transported, has to be moved, has to be done. Uh, we might buy food and then waste food, but that really, really, really matters. So I guess um, from in that sense, we grow food because people are buying food. And they're buying too much food. Uh, and I guess what we would need to do is to really think about what food is going to look like in the future. Yeah, because what we do know is that the way that we grow food and the way that we consume food is not sustainable. So this means really having a rethink about that. Uh, and that evokes some real issues and some real challenges because food for many people, I mean, you see it in the great depictions. Uh, in the religions, that food is a very, very important thing. You know, you, um, uh, you know, celebrations. It brings people together. It's a very human thing to share food. Um, so I think we're going to have to really, really think about that. Maybe we should turn our um, cities into, uh, you know, forests. Maybe we should turn our buildings into agricultural production facilities. You know, which grow food on the outside. Uh, maybe we should be growing uh, our food up instead of across. Um, can individual consumers make a significant enough impact? Well, I think they can. I, I think um, I think we've that we, that's been shown to be the case. You know, 
by the very things we we buy uh, and by the very things that we we consume. I think what we've got to do is to have knowledge uh, and understanding of the things that we buy and the things that we do uh, and the impacts that they have and don't shy away from those. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. So I do think in, you can choose, you can choose and decide um, what to do. And I think that is really, really important. Uh, and don't underestimate uh, the choices you make, because I think if we all did that, then how would change ever happen? I think we're often lulled into this idea that what we do doesn't matter. Well, I fundamentally disagree with that in the same way that I fundamentally um, believe that everybody who's watched this um, webcast has the ability to come up with a great idea. And it only takes one idea to change the world fundamentally. And that's happened throughout the history of humankind. You know, whether it's whether it's uh, the conceptualization of, of gravity or understanding what light um, is made up of, or the revealing of the human genome. I mean, all these great discoveries start off from ideas. So everybody has the ability to have one great idea. I think what you've got to do is you've got to you, you you've got to you've got to ask the what if. I mean, it's probably not going to lead you anywhere most of the time, um, but you have to ask that what if. Um, also, that right, okay. The projections anonymous projections say we need X Y Z quantities of water energy, but wouldn't such projections be based upon current technology? Disregarding, okay, yes, uh, well. Yes, uh, in part, I think that's a fair point. So we're going to need more stuff, but we may get better at producing stuff and making stuff. But then where does that get you? You know, we have one thing we can't make more efficient is the planet. And we rely on the planet to provide us with all those things that we're using efficiently or inefficiently. Uh, the planet is, you know, we don't get anything else coming in. We get no deliveries. All we get is is photons from the sun. Our entire planet is solar powered. Everything that we rely on to um, uh, exist actually resides on uh, that planet we call Earth. Um, so we can do things efficiently, but nevertheless, um, uh, we still rely on the resources that are in the planet. And I think all scientists would agree that we are by far living beyond our means. Uh, at an accelerated pace. So you're really then relying on technology to keep a pace or to keep up with that consumption. And most scientists, well over, well, all the scientists I, I deal with, and certainly my field, are, we have differences in opinion, but we all agree that we're over-consuming. So the pace of technology in some areas is just not quick enough. And we, we can take the electrification of cars as a really good example of that actually, uh, or the electrification of planes um, as an example of that, or indeed how we produce our food. Yeah, we're still producing food not too dissimilar to how we did in the 18th century. Yeah, we're planting it in the ground and we're growing it pretty much. So, um, so that's my take on that. Um, how can we look to reduce our plastic waste? Okay, um, that's a great question. That is something I'm very passionate about. I just think at the moment you've got to ask what if. What if you never um, bought another drink that had, uh, uh, you know, that, that had a plastic bottle? 
Yeah. What if you just said what if? And you could give that a go. Uh, there are plenty of alternatives. Cans actually are 100% recyclable. So when you uh, have a can of something, it turns into a can, right? Now it's still using uh, a resource, it still requires energy, but plastic is, we have just reached the last chance to lean for plastics. If you get a chance to watch um, a war on plastics with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, I did a little piece um, uh, to do with that program, it's the first episode, um, and that was really about demonstrating that the quality of water that you uh, receive from your tap is not that much different than the quality of water that you uh, buy in a plastic bottle. The difference being that you're probably charged about 300 to 400 times the amount yeah, in terms of actual cost. So to retrieve from your tap is incredibly cheap and to receive it in a plastic bottle is incredibly expensive. And despite what many people might think, there just isn't enough or any evidence that drinking uh, water from the tap has health benefits. There just aren't any. So I think it's one of those really big myths, uh, urban myths that, that perpetuate. Now the taste, I accept the taste. Some people like the taste of water from a plastic bottle as opposed to that. My recommendation to you is to put your water in a nice uh, glass bottle. You can buy, buy one, sh shell out a few pounds and get one because you can reuse it over and over again and fill your water, that bottle up with tap water and just chill it. And the taste improves um, enormously. But I think we've just got to really, I think we've reached a real crunch point when it comes to plastic. I mean, plastics are everywhere. We're doing research about plastics in air. We're doing research about plastics in soils and in water. And I'm afraid we have to stop, in my view, uh, pretty much, uh, especially with one stop or one use plastic. So I would say, what if you didn't have any uh, single use plastic in relation to drinks? Try that. OK. Um, do you think it really is going to be possible to save the planet? Because to me, it seems we've already gone too far. Um, and uh, human greed will never change. And it's always the cheaper for businesses to be unethical. Do I? But I absolutely believe that we can save the planet. I mean, we cannot we cannot concede that as human beings we must not concede that um we i mean as a species we are capable of the most amazing things um and you know some of those things are for good you know we've done some amazing things as human beings amazing feats uh in science amazing feats in uh, environmental work amazing feats um in medicine, in astronomy, we can. We can. What if we can? And I think that's where we've got to be. Asking ourselves uh, and believing that we can make huge, big differences. And I see that every year when I teach um, my students. I see that actually the appetite for change, the appetite for what if, isn't going away. You know, it's becoming that uh, they're becoming more um, more interested in asking those big questions. But it starts from us as individuals to ask those questions. We can't rely on you know we are the system, we are the government, we are the corporations. Um, I mean, I know that's a bit difficult for people maybe to accept, 
but we can and we must save Earth. And I believe that absolutely passionately. And that's what I'm dedicating the rest of my life to is to working towards trying to solve and help, even if it's in a small way, because science very rarely is a big breakthrough. Science really is about, you know, lots of people nudging things along um, to try and stimulate and drive that change. Do you think change is more successful when implemented by business, government, consumers or consumer demand? I think I think change is better when it when everybody cooperates. Um, I think when government tries to drive change, people resist. When corporations uh, tr try drive change, people resist. Everything's a partnership because everything's connected. And I think that's that's what the corporations are guilty of, I believe, um, is that they're not connected to the individuals enough. I think governments almost certainly are not connected. Um, but I think, you know, we can be angry or we can come up with ideas and be positive. And I think working together is much more constructive. And I've learned that over my last, you know, I, I had my angry phase and now I've learned Actually, if I want to make a difference and get things done, I've got to work with different people. And that means listening. That means working with people maybe I don't uh, always agree with, but I respect. And what we do is we come with ideas. And I've always been pleasantly surprised. I've always been inspired, actually, by uh, the businesses I work with are fantastic. You know, they, they want to make a real difference. I think if you ask the question, if you dare to ask these people um, or these corporations, I think you'll be surprised. And I think somehow we just need to communicate and we need to talk as individuals and we need to share ideas. And that's where I'm coming from, really, is we have to share those ideas. Right. Why is there dirty water in the university campus? Uh, this is Anne Malin. OK, Anne Malin, there's dirty water on campus because the campus has to collect water that is running off the roads. It's a legal requirement. So uh, that water is managed uh, through estates on campus who do an excellent job um, and they are dealing with that water uh, in many ways um, that exceed what is actually required by, by law. So it's just nothing unusual. We have to collect water. Water runs off roads. It runs off houses. Um, uh, obviously, we, we, we flush water down our drains water moves and we have to manage that movement. If we don't manage that movement, we uh, we discover and find out that water ends up where we don't want it to be. So the university is merely uh, doing what it's required to do. And it does a pretty good, pretty good job of that, of keeping that that dirty water away from uh, other parts of the university. And in fact, treating that water before it then releases that into the main drains that are connected with the university. And we're able to access that particular uh, environmental asset uh, for use in our own research. Um, how, much how much would water usage for food production equate to if the global population stopped consuming meat and other animal projects? Wow, that's uh, Piotta. I think I've got the name right. That's a question from Piotta. That is a stunning question uh so and i don't know the answer to that um and actually i think it's again it's a lot more complicated if we all stopped eating meat 
um, then you're talking about a lot less animals. And animals, even the animals that we rear, are actually really quite important for a whole number of reasons, for managing landscapes, for example, um, and all that kind of stuff. So I don't think it's as easy as let's just stop eating meat. It's about doing things, and, and there are very decent ethical and moral arguments around those things, and scientific arguments as well. Um, but I think it's really about understanding the impact uh, that we're having and minimising those impacts through best practice, uh, through best science and technology, and through changing, uh, you know, what, what what we expect of food and how we. Food. I mean, it always amazes me that food in this country seems to be very cheap. I know some people might be disagreeing with me, but um, food is actually quite quite cheap, and I think that's. I don't know. That's an in, the, the whole democracy around food. I think it's a really complicated question. So I'm very sorry, Piotr. I don't think I can answer that one. That's too difficult for me, I'm afraid. Uh, but happy to have a chat. Um, um, so uh, one from Jay-Z asking about uh, how much of an issue do you see combined sewer overflows? Would you say that they are one of the larger contributors to our poor waterways? Yes, Josie, uh, I'm very critical of uh, many water companies um, and the legislation around that. Um, I think combined sewer overflows uh, are a necessity because of these big influxes of water, which causes uh, those combined sewer overflows to, to, be, to become breached. Uh, and then often you'll get untreated sewage running into our rivers. And our rivers serve a very important function. You know, we, we need the capacity to do that. In my opinion, uh, the combined sewer overflows are much uh, more relied on by the water industry than is needed. And I think um, given the nature of that industry um, and uh, the fact that it's, it's, it's a, in a very funny state where you have private companies uh, that are fulfilling a, a public duty and therefore it's a very kind of fixed capitalist model I actually believe they should be contributing more to solving that problem uh, and I think they are their performance within the UK speaks for itself uh, not one not one water uh, river in the UK or in England reaches good status yeah as deemed by the European Union. Now, many people say the European believing Europe's bad for the environment. Well, I've got news for everybody. Being in Europe is bad for the environment. Being out of Europe is bad for the environment. The record of the environment across the EU is not great. Uh, so this is about doing things completely. This is not about being in Europe or out of Europe. This is about doing things completely differently. And it's asking the questions, what if? Yeah. Um, Hi, Darren. You, I'm just yep. going to cut in there. We're uh, we're at time. And so I thought that if you wanted to just sum up really quickly uh, and then that will be the end of that. OK, great. Right. So, um, well, thanks very much uh, for tuning in. Um, you can always contact me uh, through my university email address if you have any follow up questions. Um, it's been really interesting. Uh, talking to an idea that there are uh, lots of people listening <laughs> on the other side, although I can't, you can never be quite sure under these circumstances. Um, but in summary, I would just say, you know, 
just don't accept things the way they are. You know, we don't have to do that as human beings. Um, be creative. Be ambitious. Ask what if. I know people say, oh, you know, it's all a load of rubbish, blah, blah, blah. Some, it's got to start somewhere. Some people have to drive that change. Um, and I'm not one of those people that is going to sit by and do nothing. So I'm asking you, all of you out there, is, is to ask what if, is to make a positive change in your lives. Yeah. And you can start that today. You can start that this afternoon. There is nothing to stop you from having an idea. Yeah. Nothing at all. Good luck. Thanks very much. Thank you, Darren. And if anyone's listening is interested over in the um, I've made an announcement around uh, an event that's happening tomorrow around creating change, climate action for 2020. And that's tomorrow. If you're interested in being the solution for our planet, please feel free to attend. Thank you, Darren, very much for your time. And thank you, everybody here for your time as well. And I hope you have a really lovely day in the sunshine. For more information about the Inspire Me Lecture series, including other podcasts from the series, visit uwe.ac.uk slash study slash block dash zero slash inspire dash me.